Here's a question. Have you ever put a book down out of disgust or horror? Have you ever been so offended by something that you thought it had passed a limit of what should be allowed? Or are you in more of my school of thought that there shouldn't really be limits on those sort of things? And if talking about just plain old offensiveness and limits to it is something you find boring, we could reframe the question to something like, what purposes can it serve? Or what intentions drive authors to write things like that? That's going to be one of the main themes in the conversation I have with my guest in this episode. So if you've read the, the name of the episode, you'll know who the author is, what the book is, who the translator is, but I'll spell it out anyway. The book is The Book of Sins, it's by Chen Shi Wo, and we're talking, I say we, I, am talking to the book's translator, Nikki Harmon, who I think definitely qualifies as friend of the pod by now, because this is the third time that she's come on the show. If you've been listening, I'm not going to say religiously, I'll say regularly, if you've been listening regularly, you'll have noticed this is a pretty swift return for her, because she was with us just two episodes ago, but what the hell, why not? So in this book, we're going to be running into all sorts of awful, disturbing, disgusting things. Nikki and I are not, we're, we've avoided the very nastiest in our conversation. We're talking about definitely a couple of the uh, less uh, X-rated stories, let's say, but they're still quite dark. But in, in any case, before we get into, what can I say, before we step into that darkness, we're going to do the Church of Fake News, the translated Chinese fiction news. Things that I've stumbled across or are going on in the world of translated Chinese lit. So the first item, this is something I stumbled across. This is not uh, new. Well, it's not brand new. I think it's from last year, actually. Let me just check that right now. So this is a, an essay I stumbled across called The Dark Forest Theory of the Internet by Bogwa, Bogwa? Bogna Con Conwar, Conyar, Conyar. I'm. I believe she's Polish. I don't know how to say Polish surnames, so I apologize. But there'll be a link in the show notes anyway, so you don't need to Google uh, based on guesses drawn from my pronunciations. So this thing was written when? Scroll up, scroll down. Twenty, yeah, twenty twenty. So this is not so old. And uh, Bogna, she's a postdoc at the Interactive Media Arts Department at NYU Shanghai. So she's in Shanghai and. Uh, decided to use the dark forest theory as featured in the three body problem by Leo Sushin as a way of sort of um, analyzing a way to frame and talk about the internet. I won't try and explain the argument because it's uh, it's a very stylized argument, I would say, but um, you can get an idea of what it's like by looking at who she cites as well as Leo Sushin. Uh, there's no other Chinese uh, fiction writers or philosophers cited. Jean Baudrillard, Georges Bataille, a lot of Mark Fisher in there, and a fiction author who will be coming up in this episode, Thomas Ligotti. So it's um, it's, it's dark, basically. <laughs> it's moody, uh, edgy, and uh, cyberspace-focused. So it's an interesting read. It's not too long, either, and not too dense, I would say, considering how philosophical it gets. So that, that's that's linked in the show notes. Now, next thing, this is something more closely connected with Chinese lit, and it's more recent. It's a new issue of Pathlight magazine. It's called Sense of Place. Uh, it, I'll read the little sentence of, what would you call this? 
little sentence that Pathlight have written to describe the issue. This issue of Pathlight magazine features stories and poetry that are rooted in a particular place, a city, a village, an apartment, or in which a place is a character in its own right. So really simple. There's a contents page, uh, or there's there's a the page I've linked to in the show notes has all the contents with all the authors, the translators, and their stories. There is a link to actually read one of them, a graduation trip by Zhou Jianning, translated by Tsi Haoguang. Yep, it's it's up there on their website, the Pathlight website, so you can check that out. But yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff in there. We do have two former show guests in there. Uh, Dong Dong Li has translated. The Leopard Keeper by Chai Chunya and Dylan Leva King has translated Old Zhao two times by Dong Xi. And I can see also Poppy Toland, who translated Flock of Brown Birds by Gulfei, is in there. Oh, and, K- and Kanan Morse is in there too. Um, trans- he translated Going to Tang Village to Bull a Coffin by Cao Ko. And that's that's all our show guests are in there, but that's that's pretty fun. So you can order yourself a copy of that using the link in the show notes. Uh, that'll take you to the Pathlight website. So, okay, next news item. This has also got uh, Kanan Morse in it, although more prominently. So there's a book award called the National Book Award, run by the National Book Foundation. Now, big clue, they don't specify which nation it is, which almost certainly means it's American, right? If it's just a given that you must be talking about America, must be American. I'm just double-checking that. Am I talking out my ass? Yeah, New York. <laughs> okay, um, all right, we're done dissing the states. Let's talk about the actual news. So, Peach Blossom Paradise by Gouffet, translated by Kanan Morse, is in the finalists list for translated literature. So they have several categories. Translated literature gets its own one. And in that list, there is an interesting selection. One book translated from Arabic, two translated from Spanish, one translated from Chinese, and one translated from French. Although I believe the the French one um, has a yeah, it has a sort of a Korean angle. It's got a French Korean narrator or main character at least. So <laughs> I don't know if you're interested more generally in literature relating to East Asia. Then I guess you've got two two horses in this race for the finalists in the National Book Award Translated Literature 2021 prize. I can say as well, I'm just noticing scrolling through, there's quite a lot of um, Asian names in this, uh, all the different categories. So yeah, I'm drawing no conclusions from that, but just think that's interesting. Okay, um, now last news item. This is more sci-fi stuff, because of course, it's me, I'm, I'm obsessed. It's more news about uh, The Way Spring Arrives and other stories, which Tor is going to publish. This is the uh, Chinese sci-fi and fantasy uh, short story collection. I guess the thing that might set it apart from other previous collections translated to English is that everyone involved in the uh, among the authors and the translators and the editors I think about the editors anyway, not not 100% on that. Uh, they're all female or non-binary. That's the selling point, basically. Um, and the news is not that this book's getting published. That's old news. But the, the, the new news is that they've published the full table of contents. So you can see what all the stories are, who all the authors are, who all the translators are. And we do have, yet again, um, some former show guests in here. We have, uh, let me see, who have we got? Etvo, Etvilier is in here. Shaja is in here. Karahili is in here. Um, 
Dun 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 dun. Yilin Wang is in here. I think that's the lot. Oh yeah, and Emily Jin, uh, named here as Emily Xuanyi Jin, is in there. Ah, and Gigi Chang. How could I forget? So yeah, just about half of all my previous show guests uh, are in there. Well, not half, but yeah, you get the idea. Okay, so that is all the news. I've gone on for plenty of time. So enough of me rambling solo. Let's get to my interview with Nikki Harmon. On the show, yet again, we have Nikki Harmon. Hi, Nikki. Uh, how's it going? And what's passed since we last spoke? Not very long ago, except last time, of course, we had Shen Yang in the virtual room with us. Um, well, I'm, I'm really thrilled to be with you again today because we're going to be talking about one of my favourite authors who's had to confront a good number of difficulties, especially in the last few years, and I think writes very different from the other authors I've talked to you about. He writes excellent novellas and short stories, and that's really where he, where he excels. So I haven't had the opportunity to translate any of his stuff recently, but I did do an entire book of his short stories um, and a couple of excerpts from his latest book. So I'm really looking forward to talking about him. And that book, that's our book for this episode. It's The Book of Sins. Uh, this one was published, oh, I should... 2014? There you go, 2014. Right. So seven years ago. And I think this is the only book of his available in English translation. And it's from the publisher, um, I think they've gone by two names, 46 and Make Do, Harvey Tomlinson's publishing house, if that's right. Yeah, there are, there are a couple of excerpts from his novellas, which if you look on the Paper Republic webpage for him under authors, um, you'll see that there are some bits and pieces that have appeared online and you can read them there, but most of his work in translation is from The Book of Sins, which is this 2014 publication. Right. So since you're you're the translator of that book, I guess you're quite a good person to ask. Um, is this like a sort of a patchwork of lots of things available in different original texts, or, or is this a one-for-one -one translation of a Chinese book? Most of the collection in Book of Sins which is um, short stories and one short novella, uh, came out of a collection that uh, he published in China called the Mao Fan Shu, the, the book of offences, literally, rather than sins. But right. also, I believe a couple of them are not in there. And of course, the novella for which he is most famous, notorious, I Love My Mum, uh, I think appeared separately and certainly appeared separately in English. And then I did a retranslation, which appears in the Book of Sins. And it would be quite fun to just mention that later on, because apart from being quite offensive to the Chinese authorities, the publisher is who now no longer publishes under that imprint is trying to make a film, is indeed making a film of uh, I Love My Mum. So we have to watch this spot. I know no more about it, except that I'd be excited to see it. Yes, uh, I've heard so, some whispers about that too, and looks like it'll really be something. So I guess we can cut to the chase, uh, since listeners, if they don't know who, they are, who you are, they can listen back to the episode, your first appearance on the show, talking about the Chili Bean Pace Clan, and then another recent one, 
with Shenyan talking about uh, more than one child. So we can cut to the chase, talk about the author, Chen Shiwa. Um, what can you tell us about him, aside from the fact that he's a writer of uh, stories that the authorities don't like? Okay, so um, he's quite unusual in that he hasn't at any point moved to one of the enormous metropolises in China. He's neither lives in Shanghai, nor in Beijing, nor in Nanjing, nor even in Guangdong, uh, Guangzhou. So he lives in the southeast uh, Fujian province, where right. he was born, where he continues to live and work. And although he has spent some time in Japan when he was younger, he has been teaching comparative literature at one of the universities in Fuzhou, the provincial capital of Fujian. Fujian is quite interesting as a province because it's where it's on the southeastern seaboard and it's where so many of the Chinese migrants emigrated from and have emigrated from over the last more than 100 years um, and continue to do so. So it's, um, it's quite a special and interesting sort of place. Um, that said, he is very much a writer with a real fascination for comparative literature. And I wish I could listen in on some of his, his lessons. He's uh, mm. very well, very literate in foreign literature as well as Chinese literature. And um, he's been writing in his spare time. One of the funny things I discovered when I was updating his biography on Paper Republic is that um, it's not quite clear uh, when he was born. Some websites have born in the 60s, others have born in the 70s. I think we can be fairly sure that he's in his 50s now. Interesting. Um, and I say he's, he's very much an individual writer. He doesn't follow the writing trends. He's always written about people, their personal pain, their personal conflicts. And he's always been extremely scathing about Chinese society as run by the Communist Party. And he uses descriptions, sometimes quite graphic descriptions, of sex and violence as metaphors for the way this society runs and, in his view, hurts its people. So not entirely a happy place. On the other hand, he does often have quite a light touch as well. And one of the stories that we're going to talk about today is, I think, a wonderful story about old people and how society has changed for them. Also, he's very good on children. He often narrates stories in the voice of a child, which also has a way of lightening the tone. So he's not entirely grim, but he is very sharp and sharply observant. Yeah, I think... This is just my opinion, but I think some people who are very open to all the darker things in the world are often quite understanding or kind to children. And I don't see that as a contradiction, because if you know, if, if it's your view that the world kind of sucks, then of course you'd not want to ruin childhood, a time when you're sort of insulated, hopefully, from all those rough edges of the world. So that doesn't actually surprise me too much that he's good at writing kids' perspectives. Makes a lot of sense to me. Mm. Um, yes, there's another story he wrote, which hasn't come out in translation, but I translated an excerpt of it. Uh, it's called Pet, and it's about a kid who adopts a cockerel and then spends the whole time trying to um, 
protect his or her, we're never quite sure the, the gender of the child, his or her co cockerel from people who want to kill it and eat it. And um, it's really quite funny, but also you get so much into the mind of this kid and their favourite pet. <laughs> and it's quite extraordinary and also quite funny. Mm, I'd love to read that. That sounds good. I guess I've got one one more little question, um, and I don't know if you know the answer to this. You mentioned he was in Japan, living in Japan for a while. Do, you, do we know why? Do we know what he was up to there? Um, according to Harvey, his previous publisher, he was um, being the doorkeeper in a brothel. But oh, that's right. I Tunsi War has always denied this, and I do think that the publisher might have, um, in a teasing sort of way, quite enjoyed using this, whether or not it was true. He, uh, he was a student in Japan. He did, therefore, have to pick up any old job that was going to keep him alive. But he's never said that it was actually in a brothel, but maybe it was. Yeah, uh, you've reminded me one of the end elements of the book. In fact, the only end element in the book... Uh, is the about the offers so there's a paragraph on yourself mentions that you live in the UK and then about a little bit about your job offers you've translated Chenshi was is much the same except the very first sentence which says Chenshi Wa once worked as a mama-san in a Tokyo brothel and uh, yeah <laughs> first first time reading this book and then coming back to it for this episode I was like eh re really <laughs> interesting I, I'm sure that he would have done it with a great great aplomb but he always denies it so i don't know if we'll ever know in the same way as we don't know his birth date either interesting um right so we, we've we've hinted at this or we've not hinted we've we've talked a bit about the book the translated book itself a little bit so let's go right on to that can you tell the listeners anything about how this translation uh, came about i think it was because harvey tomlinson the publisher, Make Do Publishing, also published under the imprint 46, came to know about Chen Xi War uh, when Harvey was living in Hong Kong. After all, Hong Kong and Fujian province are not a million miles apart. Mm. And Harvey was always looking for really interesting, unusual authors. And Chen Xi War certainly fits the bill. And also, uh, Chen Xi War came to went to Hong Kong and in one of his famous speeches in 2010, he was invited to speak in the, excuse me, will I find the proper name of it, the Hong Kong Foreign Correspondence Club. Oh, yeah. I think. Um, the Hong Kong Foreign Correspondence Club, where he gave a long in-depth uh, speech about why it was so important in China to speak out and the penalties that you suffer if you if you do speak out and what had happened to him. And one of the famous things that happened to him was that his uh, Chinese version of this book, the book of what was then published as the Book of Sins in English, was published in Taiwan. And he was expecting a shipment of the copies of the book. And they were all confiscated at, at customs. And so he took the customs to court, which is virtually unheard of, and pursued a case against them for having confiscated his books. And you can see that's the kind of brave, even sometimes foolhardy man that he is. And he um, 
he, he did say in his speech in Hong Kong, this incident had happened a couple of years before that, that apparently the customs deeply regretted having opened his box because they really opened a can of worms. Then it became this, this um, famous court case. Uh, so no doubt Harvey met him in Hong Kong when he did this trailblazing speech defending as a, as a resident in China, not an expelled dissident. Um, he did this talk about the importance of defending freedom of speech in, in China. Um, and it's still online. It's still online at the Asia Sentinel, if you look under their archives. And also, if you look on his page in Paper Republic, all the links are there. But of course, it's very sad that what's happened to him since is that his freedom of uh, speech has been more and more res restricted. He's been ostracized by other authors. His job, while not being taken away, he has been downgraded and demoted um, in his job. So I think this, is, this has been a, you know, he hasn't found life easy. In a sense, 2010, 11 years ago, was a time when he could still enjoy a degree of freedom. Not anymore. Right. And something quite important happened in 2010, I believe. That's roughly speaking, uh, the entry of Xi Jinping into the leadership of, of China, I believe. Um, so it's interesting that the change for Chen uh, came like bang on that time. I'll just say for the listeners, um, the Foreign Correspondence Club is a place you can walk by in Hong Kong. Um, I've I, I learned about its existence by walking past it and seeing the sign on the door and then had a little bit of a flashback to it well after leaving China. Um, I think anyway, it was afterwards and there was um, some there was a fracas of some sort during the kind of phased authoritarian kind of crackdown is the right word. But um, as uh, Beijing imposed its will, the Beijing government, I should say, imposed its will more on Hong Kong, there was some kind of a a flashpoint involving the Foreign Correspondence Club. You may, if, if you're following news in Hong Kong, it might pop up. And the other, the other time I've run into it is um, reading up a little bit on a guy I was going to interview for the show, Mr. Paul French. Uh, there's a video of him on the Foreign Correspondence Club's YouTube account uh, talking about old Shanghai. So it's a, a whole, a whole treasure trove of, of stuff there. I'll make sure there's links to these things in the show notes, including that speech, Nikki. I'll make sure that speech is linked in the show notes so listeners can read it. Um, I'll just make a note of that right now. Jen, she was. Yeah, I if... updated links on his, his author page on Paper Republic, so it'd be easy to find everything there. Excellent. Thanks very much for doing that. Um, so we've talked a bit about how the book came about. Um, We've talked a little bit about the controversy in its arrival, well, attempted arrival in mainland China. Um, so maybe we can change that question slightly. Um, can you do you have any anecdotes about how this book was received in English, the sort of press or responses it got? Um, well, I think it's going back to the Chinese. I think it's worth saying that hmm. it, 10, 15 years ago, Chen Shiwo was very much um, a praised and respected author all over China, and he won a number of literary prizes. However, he didn't. He didn't lower. He didn't. He didn't stop criticizing the Chinese government and Chinese society. And gradually, it became quite difficult. I think. Uh, I think. I know he feels ostracized now. So that one conference I went to about five six years ago, he was there, 
one another conference I went to in China two, three years ago, he wasn't there and he knew he wasn't going to be invited. So his field of operations has gradually got narrower and narrower. But he he is still very well respected and he did get those prizes. Mm-hmm. Um, how did the how did it get uh, how did the translation um, how was it received in English? I think I read. I mean, you can you can read on Goodreads and Amazon. You can read some great readers' reviews. One of the most heartwarming reviews and most insightful reviews that I read is actually on was one written by Clarissa Seabag Montefiore on. I'm going to have to fumble here. I think it's the Wall Street Journal. Okay. Uh, and it's called A Ban Take on Contemporary China. Unfortunately, it's behind a paywall. But um, I went on, I paid the subscription, downloaded the review, and then undid my prescription. <laughs> my <Yeah>. subscription. <laughs> but it's she, Clarissa Seabag Montefiore writes extremely, uh, a very insightful review and very, uh, very moving. I mean, she. I'm looking at it now. It's a nice long review. Mm. Um, and she talks about some of the most shocking stories uh, in the collection, uh, of which probably the most notorious is the one that I said uh, that his publisher, Harvey Tomlinson, is now making a film of, which is I Love My Mum. And that's the one that if anyone knows about Trinity Ward, that's the story they know about, because it's about a paraplegic whose mother tries desperately to look after him. And long story short, it ends up with incest and matricide. But it goes through a number of permutations before you get to that point. And it's a very disturbing and really very gripping story. Um, Anyway, so what else does Clarissa say? She points out that how critical he is about all aspects of uh, Chinese society. So I Love My Mum is a scathing indictment on the poor treatment of the disabled in China. And then she says, and I think I agree with her, that Chen Shiwo is at his most moving when he explores the generation in China who are materially well off, but spiritually adrift. And we could talk a bit more about, about this when we get to our bones um, but mm. that's what she considers a really beautiful story. And so do I, because it just shows how the generations, there's a yawning gap between the generations. Those who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 20s, 30s, 40s, they all have completely different uh, experiences of life in China. She finishes off by saying it's to Mr. Chen's credit that he can mix such grim subject matter with humour and pull it off. And the Book of Sins exposes a side of China often not seen, um, both in its larger taboos and smaller everyday occurrences. So that that is that was a very nice review. There were quite a lot of nice reviews. I can't say it was a bestseller. Uh, it's quite rare for a, a, an indie publisher to get a bestseller in a, with an unknown author collection of short stories. But it's yeah. still out there for people to buy. And it won an English Pen Award, which is an accolade based both on the original and on the translation. Yeah, there you go. This is a book I've seen 
on a real bookshelf in a, in a Waterstones. It was in the Manchester Waterstones alongside um, uh, Tantra, I guess. I don't know if that was because of the alphabet or because um, there was a little mini translated Chinese section, but I remember that's two things I remember about that that trip to Waterstones. Book of Sins was there and there was an awful lot of Tantra. But yeah, that is a huge bookshop. So that's maybe not representative of all Waterstones. They maybe, they're maybe able to get more things other other bookshops in the UK couldn't but I remember being struck by the cover the the skull on the the black background very striking I I had one little question uh just following up on something you mentioned there um about how Chen Shiwa went from being this very well regarded um accoladed offer in the mainland to an ostracized offer um yeah. and you mentioned how he, you mentioned that he's sort of was consistent or persistent in his criticism of society um and i i I mentioned that in 2010 xi jinping became the president and things have kind of grad yeah gradually taken a bit of a turn um but we didn't tease out cause and effect do you think his marginalization to put it gently wouldn't have happened had he toned it down or do you think it's sort of an inevitable consequence of changes that are totally outside of his control or is it just impossible to say well i i'd hesitate to say obviously the political atmosphere in china has affected all literary writers all authors in china recently it's affected some more than others there in you know within living memory within the last 10 15 years there were there have been certain freedoms that now no longer ex- exist. Some authors have simply stopped writing or gone into making films, mm. uh, but that is not necessarily because their freedoms were being restricted. It could be because they make more money making films. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, Shen Xiuo is very definitely a personality who's clearly deeply stubborn. <laughs> and absolutely. He is determined to be a thorn in the side of the authorities. And um, I think one thing that I do know about him is that he's very determined. Uh, I mean, he did write me when he knew that you and I were going to do this podcast. He wrote to me last week and I said, can you update me on what you've been doing? Knowing that he's had a really hard time and that he's suffered through his job being demoted and I'm not exactly sure if he's still teaching comparative literature but um, I could read um, oh something quite quite interesting uh, just a few lines about what he's been what's happened to him recently he's continued to write That's I great. wasn't surprised in <laughs> fact I think a couple of his more recent books um, he's suffered a good deal of ill health brought on almost certainly by stress Mm. He says, I've been punished for speaking out. My salary has been reduced. My livelihood is increasingly difficult. And my old friends in the literary world have abandoned me. And when his latest novel, apparently, uh, when in fact I got a copy, Xin Heart, was published, they held a kind of book club session. He calls it a sharing session. Many people protested and reported to the, to the authorities saying that I was anti-party, anti-socialist writer, just like Fang Fang. Well, Fang Fang was the woman who wrote the Wuhan Diaries. Yep. Who is no way as much a thorn in the side of the authorities and never and certainly doesn't intend to be, but 
uh, that's another matter, as Chen Xiwar. Um, so how so Chen Xiwar goes on, how can I publish and promote my uh, my book? The doctor told me that um, I really, my doctor advised me not to read articles, not to think too much about problems, not to write. But as a writer, how is that possible? I'm still writing, but it's difficult. Last year, so this must be an even more recent book, which I haven't seen, I completed my autobiographical novel, The Poet Must Die. Um, but it hasn't been published yet because I'm considered politically sensitive as a writer and because this novel focuses on Chinese society. So far from toning his work down, he's ramping it up, it seems to me. Um, he's written a lot of short stories, which, as I said, I think he he writes excellently, but they've been rejected not because they're badly written, but because of the unwillingness of the publisher to risk getting into trouble. And this, of course, happens that if a publisher publishes an author like Chen Xiuo, the entire company can be closed down and all the staff in it can be sacked. So publishers have to think quite carefully how much they, they risk. And he finishes off, there is nothing worse for a writer than not being able to write um, or writing and not finding any readers. And his final sentence was to thank me and you for supporting him. He says, it means so much to him to know that he's not completely isolated. Yeah, well, I'll pass the message back to him. This show has, it doesn't have mass, an army of listeners, um, maybe a regiment. Uh, it's in listeners numbering in the hundreds. And they are all sorts of different people in all sorts of different countries. Lots of them are Chinese in one way or another. Lots of them are not. And I'm sure they're all going to be rooting for him one way or the other. So great to be doing some communication by proxy via yourself, the translator, appropriately enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So never thought I'd be so heartwarmed talking about <laughs> this book of all books. Um, but like I said, some sometimes nihilists have the warmest hearts. Oh, that's, that's very nice. I'm going to save that phrase. Sometimes the nihilists have the warmest hearts. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, nihilist is a strong word to be throwing around. Maybe, maybe I don't mean it completely literally, lit, literally. So keeping things rolling, I guess we can talk about the first of the two stories we've chosen. This was one of my favourites, if not my favourite. And it's um, one of probably one of the less awkward ones to talk about. Uh, there was one or two I almost chose. And then I thought, wait, no, I don't really want to talk about this with Nikki. I'd rather do something less icky. So this one is nasty. But I wouldn't say it's too icky. Um, it's called Pain. And it follows, it's, it's a female narrator, uh, a, a young woman. And it's sort of sort of like a Bildungsroman. So that's a term from German, means a novel about the sort of emotional and intellectual development of a person. I guess they'd usually be young, young boys, but this is a girl. And this is quite a short, short story. It's not, not a novel. It occurs to me, though, before um, before we talk about that story, I thought we could talk about the intro, the opening material. I might just be able to read all of it. So we open with an epigraph, and it's a quote from uh, European literature, which makes more sense now that I know he teaches comparative lit. It's a quote from Venus in Furs, and it says, You have corrupted my imagination and inflamed my blood. I'm beginning to enjoy all this, which is perfect for the, the sort of twisted twisted things that go on in this book, especially for this first story, Pain. And then um, after this epigraph, we get a little opening 
section. I'm just going to go ahead and read this opening section. It's a little bit long, but it's not too long. So reading starts here. This is a dark world. I can see that even if you can't. When I tell you about it, you say, what you see isn't real. You're sick. Yes, I am a sick man. I am damned because I see a world you can't or won't see, because I see the skull beneath the skin. But you're no better off. You're like a frog that has been caught and thrown into the pot. The water warms up. You're a bit uncomfortable, but you can take it, and you're too lazy to move anyway. Then the water starts to boil, and now you want to jump out, but it's too late. You should have felt the pain much earlier. Then you could have jumped out of the pot and saved your skin out of the pot and saved your skin. Is being alive really such a big deal? I'm not sure. What's the point of living like a contented pig without a scrap of dignity? In one sense, someone who dares not to live is more deserving of our respect. So I'll risk pissing you off to show you life as it really is. Take a good look. I know you really want to, even though if you find even though you find it offensive. I know you have a longing to be outraged to suffer. We're all secret masochists. Take toothache. We know that if we touch a rotten tooth, it will hurt more but we still can't help probing it with our tongue, just to make sure. We need to be sure, even if it makes the pain worse. In fact, when the pain reaches a peak, it seems to lessen. There's a light, even in the darkest of places. I insist that I am an idealist. The fact that I am prepared to offend my readers, whatever the consequences to me, proves that. Of course, I can't compel you to share my idealism. I can only place this book in front of you, each chapter deeper and more terrifying than the last. Before you enter each one, I will ask you, are you sure about this? You can shut the book now. If you still choose to read on, don't blame me. And then we have three lines in bold that come at the end of every chapter after this, or something similar um, to these three lines. Are you sure about this? You can shut the book now. Do you choose to read on? And I'll just seal that with um, my impression reading this first time around is that there's no political dimension. This was my my point of view reading this the first time, that there was no political dimension. He's just talking existentially about how much it sucks to be a human being. But put in more context, there's a really interesting reading that could have nothing to do with what I just described, a metaphorical reading about um, society, the society you're in, in this case, the PRC, and choosing to see all the ugly things. And I guess being literature, the magic is both readings are pretty valid. Do you, do you lean more one way or the other? Or do you feel just more or less what I said there, that th there's, there's multiple le uh, levels and layers here? I find that a really hard question to answer. I mean, I think I find his stories so immersive that I don't actually want to analyse what level they're immersive on. Mm. I, with pain, it's a lot to do with women's pain, menstrual yeah. play, pain. There's loads of blood all over the place. Also, she has this very unfortunate history of bad teeth. So ever since the protagonist is a kid, she's always suffering pain at the dentist. Then there's this business about pethidine and getting addicted to pethidine and being shut away in a mental hospital. I just find it, I find that I don't really want to analyse what level it's operating on. I I think I think this story of all the stories is the one where I think, do I really want to read this? Just as he says at the beginning, do I choose to go on? Yes, I do. But yes, yeah, but ouch, it's um it's a very painful story, but it's absolutely gripping. 
that's interesting that this one's like the, the hardest one for you. Um, I think maybe that might possibly be for a reason it's a favorite for me. It's that the narrator is basically not a good person. She's maybe quite sympathetic. And because of the, because we're going through her early years, we see why she becomes the way she does. She has a very messed up upbringing, which I guess I'll try and quickly describe. So she we start off and she's recounting how her mum raised her with regards to brushing her teeth. Her mum basically gives her a bit of a complex about toothbrushing and toothache because she says, you must always brush your teeth constantly or you'll you'll end up like me all your teeth will fall out you'll have awful toothache so the kid is raised as far as well it's interesting it doesn't seem like she was raised with an awful lot of discipline except when it came to sugar and nutrition intake and she was totally constrained but despite all that ends up with toothache anyway and I feel like the the cause and effect becomes a bit murky after that but she suffers other pain too the next thing she runs into is um I guess, difficulty with her periods as a teenager, which is never resolved going into adulthood. And then it seems like later she has unspecified pains like all through her her body, ruining her life. And what that makes me wonder is like, as well as doing some rather dubious things to other people she meets that we might get into and having a very negative view of life that could be kind of grating, but also weirdly pleasing to read, at least I, I really like miserable narrators. Um, as well as having that made me wonder just how much do I trust her account of her own pain, given that it's not clear where the toothache came from, if she's telling the truth. And it's really unclear where those third types of pains came from, the generalized ones. It seemed to me, I know you don't like, you said you don't want to read between the lines too much on this one, but like, I wonder how much of the pain is stemming from a real condition and how much is um, maybe a result of the complex her mom seems to have given her. Yeah, okay. I, uh, I'm i going to hazard a guess as to what Trinity Wall was also saying, which is not just that some young people suffer from miserable, awful pain, but that we live in a pain-filled society. Mm. And so he is kind of drawing... Uh, a wider point there. I think it's worth saying that um, the story ends up with her wanting pethidine because it's great. I didn't actually realise that pethidine is addictive because it's, I believe, an opiate. Mm. Anyway, if I could just fill in a bit of background, opiates in China have been much more severely controlled, even in medical use, for many, many years because of the stigma attached to opium addiction, which was a feature of the century before last, the 19th century, the early 20th century. And so I believe, I don't know whether it's still true, but for quite a long period um, in the 20th century, in the beginning of this century, uh, people in China who were suffering from serious pain from cancer were often not given opiates. Because, right. because of this stigma. And this comes up in this story. So she, her father, who is a kind of, even though she can't, he can't cure her pain as a, as a young girl, her father is an admirable figure and a doctor and someone who gives her a feeling of comfort. And then her, do- her father gets uh, cancer. And I mean, at the beginning of um, section three of the story, the father gets kidney um, 
kidney, liver cancer. Without his white coat, my father lost all his dignity. As soon as he was diagnosed, my father was reduced to a mere mortal. And it's utterly painful to read the sad story about how her father dies in agony and how one day he desperately begs his doctors, having been a doctor himself, he begs his doctors for um, painkillers because he's in so much pain and they turn away. They're too scared to listen to him. They don't want to risk their jobs by giving him banned painkillers. And um, anyway, so I, I think it's worth filling in that, that, that Chen Xiuo is saying, you know, so many people in China suffer pain, not just this girl, that there is a degree of social commentary, as there is in most of his stories. There's a, a certain degree of social commentary. But in other ways, it reminds me so painfully of being a, a teenage girl. You know, there's the blood and the pain and the embarrassment and the, oh, and it's gripping. I really recommend the story. Something I think first person is very good at. It's good at being very punchy, um, screamingly direct and honest and not afraid to sort of stick the knife in. Um, that bit you mentioned about her dad is a bit that really stuck out to me. Again, me tr- looking for books that sort of confirm my the negative feelings I had about life at the time. I'll just put it like that. And then I come across this part where, um, again, I'll, I'll read an excerpt here, a couple of excerpts, actually. My father always stood up tall until the day liver cancer failed him. Everyone said he'd got the wrong disease. He didn't smoke or drink or eat pickles or any fried food. He had none of those bad habits habits which are supposed to cause cancer. And then skipping down a little bit, Dad, I asked, does it hurt? Yes, he said. And then more loudly, life is just a big trap and I fell right into it. Um, And again, in a sort of strange way, reading this story and the book gave me a bit of comfort because it was a way of seeing, not seeing myself, but seeing my own concerns reflected someone was writing about characters having these thoughts um without trying to overshare i had i had i have a relative who um is like the healthiest guy i've ever known uh literally only ate the healthiest had the healthiest diet you could really conceive of was really active and yeah um cancer what am i trying to say came up regardless and ruined ruined the nice look the quite nice life he was having and just that's what it is there's not the causes there's no there's no line of cause and effect that can be traced back and there's no neat bow to, to tie it all with which makes a statement like life is just a big trap feel hard to disagree with if, if you if you fixate on the, the negative things and it's not it's not something you can really prove or disprove it's just a reaction really to some of the crappy things we have to deal with being alive like i i've certainly never been a teenage girl but um I know how pain feels. Um, I have an anecdote actually related to teeth. That's a really, it will get me onto a metaphor about pain that seems, uh-huh. I don't know. I like, I like going into weird, weird trains of thought on the show. So when I was a lad, I was on a skiing holiday, um, which I now never go on because um, a, I was sitting on a ski chair, leaned forward a bit too far. The bar came up wham knocked me right in the tooth um long story short half of one of my teeth is fake now and for a few days on sorry nikki (laughs) for a few days on that holiday it was unsealed which didn't cause me any trouble 
but sometimes when I was brushing my teeth, a bristle would touch the nerve ending, which I didn't know was there. And I feel, oh, and it's a reminder that um, that's where pain comes from. Our sense of touch is just, sorry, pain, I think in, a, in some ways, is just your sense of touch being overloaded. It's, um, it's an extreme input from the outside world. So if you have a particularly pessimistic view of the world, if, you, if you're exposed too much, if your body is exposed too much to life, it gets damaged and you feel it as pain. And it's just a depressing thought. But um, if you're of the wrong sort of mindset, you like this narrator, and you're unfortunate to suffer from some uh, physical ailments, then it could be hard not to sort of fixate on these things. And I think the story conveys that quite well. And it's readable, partly because it's well written, partly because there's something true about it, I think, on quite a deep level. Yeah, yeah. So some people are heroic about pain, but I guess most of us are not. Yeah, exactly. And she, she had a, this narrator has a double whammy. Uh, she's not heroic and, and she is. Uh, she suffers from a lot of different kinds of pain. Yeah. I think you could say something similar about pessimism. Some people have a pessimistic outlook and keep it to themselves. Others are evangelical pessimists. They want, they quite desperately want other people to see things through their eyes. Uh, that's where I wanted to bring up these other two writers doing some comparative literature of our own. So these are two writers. I think I like one of them more than the other. One of them is more famous than the other. He's uh, Chuck Palahniuk. So he's the guy behind Fight Club. He's got this absolutely horrific collection of short stories called uh, Haunted that have a lot more body horror uh, and just gross stomach turning stuff than um, Book of Sins does. But maybe in terms of like its view of people is more cynical but for like a view of the world maybe similarly dark and the short story format reminds me a lot of this one this book and then the other guy is Thomas Ligotti who is on the surface a sort of H.P. Lovecraft horror writer trying to write otherworldly scary stories but at his core is a really uh, unhappy man I think he has anhedonia he, he's just unable to really feel pleasure and stories are a way for him to one sort of get something out of life not pleasure per se but to capture a feeling of wonder at horrible things but i think also he's trying to make get people to see things from his angle at least as a way maybe not to fill them with despair but to um to to convey that feeling so i wanted to ask in either of these ways or in some other ways do you think Book of Sins ever verges into something we could call horror, or is it more sort of literary or social all the time? Well, there's one of the other stories about a, a kid who tips another kid over a over a cliff. Um, I, but even there, I would say I don't feel that it really works on... Uh, it, they don't work as horror stories. And I haven't read a lot of horror stories, but I feel that we're taken very carefully through the feelings of the protagonists. And that strikes me as not the kind of thing that happens in horror stories. Mm. Uh, my understanding of horror stories is that things happen to you. And then the story explores your or the protagonist's reaction to them. No, I think this is very different. This is um, horrible things happen. But what we're really concerned about is what the people in the story feel about it. Mm. Not that I've read an awful lot of Chuck, Chuck Palahniuk, but yeah, he's more of that school. He's probably not a horror writer either. Everything's quite personal. 
Whereas, yeah, like Thomas Ligotti, he's a great writer, but you wouldn't be reading him for the characters. That would be a waste of your time. So yeah, what you say there rings rings really true. The story is going to heaven. That's the one about the the cliff incident. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that one reminded me of some movies, maybe because this the description of the landscape was quite visual, but also I think movies yeah. are quite good at capturing those sort of awful, ab- absurd situations where someone just does something like, I don't know, um, a film. I've seen films, American, British and Chinese, where like maybe two people are having a dispute. One happens to have a weapon, bashes the other person on the head or shoots them. There's no soundtrack. There's no um, there's no big shocking moment. The other person just flops over dead. Film, especially like more indie films, are very good at laying bare how awful things can just happen and be totally mundane. And that's I think that was the feeling I got reading Going to Heaven, sort of the absurdity of how, yeah, how we the, we, the re- yeah. we the readers looking on objectively see these awful things. But from the point of view of a kid, it's just another Tuesday. It's a, a, a bit Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Anyway, yep. so on horror, no, I think horror is a minor element, I'd say. That's fair enough. So I think, have I, have I exhausted all my questions? Um, I think the uh, question I haven't exhausted is about the, the female narrator. You mentioned already that the pain that the girl, well, girl and then woman feels is really quite inseparable from her period pains and all the trouble she has there. Um, uh, yeah, but I think there's more to it than that um, because that's not, it's not just a brief episode when she's going through that part of her life. It has some deeper, um, it triggers some deeper anxieties and she ne- she she never, although what am I trying to say? As I was reading the story for the first time, she meets this underling of her dad, a doctor. And I, as, as a first time reader, I thought, oh, is this going to wind up with some dark, twisted, awful relationship that's going to end in uh, something terrible? But actually, no, she just sort of, without ever doing anything, so to speak, she just uses the guy to get... Um, some of the, the medicine but regardless I feel like the that relationship might have its roots in a time when she what can I say she as, as a girl she goes she goes to a she gets a checkup from a, a gynecologist an old lady who doesn't tell her anything very useful just tells her it'll hurt less once you're married and that's left hanging in the air and in her mind did I don't, I don't know if I can phrase that as a question but do you have any thoughts about that angle in the story I I th- I think that the story is not just about being female. And mm. after all, for most females, for most girls and women, their their bodies uh, have more of an impact on them. Or it is possible to grow up as a male, I imagine, and kind of make your body do what you want. Whereas if you're a girl, a woman, a lot of the time your body is doing things to you, and there's not. Sometimes not a lot you can do about it, but I think that the story on another level is about her lack of control. So she tries to control this young man, but in the end, he he apologizes to the clinic for having given her pethidine. And then he is forgiven and rises up in the hierarchy and she gets banged up in a mental hospital. And when she comes out, it's not to a life of freedom. It's basically into the arms of her mother. So it's all about the fact that she never really gains control over her life. So 
yes, it's focused on the pain, but the pain and everything that comes from that, the pain that she suffers, has a major effect on her lack of control. So she's never able to overcome it. Everything and everyone dominates her. In the end, she's just become infantilized. First, you know, her mum's going to look after her. First of all, she is a child. Then when she's an adult, she's put back in the care of her mother when she comes out of the hospital. Yeah, that's that's a thought I hadn't I hadn't had before. But um, I guess for some people growing up, they think, well, the conventional life everyone lives is terrible. I'll check out. I'll do it my own way. So I won't partner up with someone. I won't get a conventional job. But that can, I think in any society, but maybe especially a more conservative one, it sort of blocks off your path to adulthood because people won't treat you as such or might not be able to get the income that allows you to get the things that that would give you independence, I guess. And I I felt that more on the second read. She comes um, comes out the clinic and then bang, there's sort of, there's a nuclear family of some sort. They're waiting for her that she's probably, well, we know she wants nothing to do with. Yes. So, um, as you say, she's not an entirely likable character, but she doesn't have a very happy time. No, not at all. No, but she's an interesting person, an interesting head to be inside, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, shall we go on to Our Bones now, story number two? Right. Yes. Well, not number two in the book, but number two in our discussion. Yeah. We mentioned it a wee bit before. Um, I thought I'd try and summarize it. If you feel I've missed anything really uh, glaring, please, please please, jump in afterwards. And then after that, um, we've got an excerpt of the story that he's going to read for you, the listeners. So summarizing it just off the top of my head, we open with a narrator who doesn't want to talk too much about himself. He's talking about his parents um and i think he mentions right at the start i will just check that he sort of there's a tone of admiration right from the start but let me check that yes the very first sentence is my parents may have been set in their ways but they always seemed happy and i remember reading this for the first time thinking hmm seemed happy something must be rotten beneath the surface but no the story is really different from everything else in the book i would say so it's more or less the story of the mother and father, who are just referred to as he and she, one day they they fancy having something a bit different to eat for dinner, and they get fixated on this bone called a gourd bone that they used to have a lot back, I think, during the Cultural Revolution. And before. Right, maybe more crucially before, actually. And they they in their mind, they sort of associate it with them being together and um, sort of making do with what they could get. And in modern the modern world where they're living as older people they find it they go through like a massive comedy of errors trying to get one of these bones and i think to summarize most of the encounters they want to buy it it's not for sale they want to pay for it uh confusion ensues that repeats in a few iterations i think basically um i think first time reading the story i was like i was thinking right when is it going to become dark why isn't this twisted Next page, next page, next page. So I sort of didn't really appreciate it first time round. Uh, second time round, I knew what I was looking for. And I thought it was, it's not really my favorite kind of story still, but it's a great sort of character study of these two people. And it's really subtle and quite clever. Like you could do a reading of the relationship and see a lot about these two people. What I was 
intrigued by was the idea of buying and selling. Given that the countries switched from pretty orthodox communism when they were younger, where we don't, you know, the market is a thing to be avoided, and to, to the, the world they're living in as older people, where the market's taken over and, you know, mar- the market logic, if it's not got a price for buying and selling, it doesn't exist, it doesn't compute. And that's one of the things, not the only thing, but that's one of the things that they're bashing up against. And I, I found that pretty interesting. But I'll just ask you, um, well, no, sorry, first, um, did, did, is there anything you feel I've missed there in the summary that we should add? Um, no, I think that summarizes it pretty well. I mean, they, they even get themselves arrested <laughs> <laughs> trying to pay for this scrappy bone. I mean, the whole significance of the bone is that most of China after 1949 for quite a long time, and certainly before, of course, used to be very poor. And most people didn't have money to buy meat and right. they didn't have ration coupons to buy meat either. And this was the very poorest kind of bone because you think of most bones, um, pork bones, chicken bones or whatever, you can get some kind of meat or cartilage or something of them. But this, what they call the gourd bone, is actually the pig's scapula. If you think about it, it's a large flat bone with absolutely nothing on it. But it was the height of luxury back when they were an impoverished young couple to be able to get one of these bones and they would make it into a broth and they would boil it and boil it and boil it, add a bit of vinegar, add a few herbs and so on. And so it kind of represented their happy uh, younger days. In the meantime, of course, China has moved on. China is now a great deal richer and most people are a great deal richer. So the the bone, most people don't even know this bone exists, let alone you wouldn't ever try and buy one in a butcher's because it would be so embarrassing. And butchers just chuck them on the floor. They certainly wouldn't sell them. Right. Yeah, exactly. So this is one of their many trips to try and buy this good bone. Um, They fled from the supermarket not knowing what to think or where to go. They just wandered around the streets. It was nearly noon and they suddenly became aware that they hadn't fulfilled their promise to their bellies. They decided to go to a restaurant. The menu had all the usual things on it. Seafood, fish, meat, vegetables, noodles, soup. What kind of soup? Clam and frog soup. Three flavour bean curd soup. Pickled mustard and shredded pork soup. What about bone soup? Yes, said the waitress. Seaweed and spare rib soup. No, thank you. There's yam and thigh bone soup, she added. That has thigh bone in. Do you have good bone soup? What? The waitress looked blank. It was as if the world, the word had become obsolete. The top of, the bit at the top of the thigh bone, he said, patiently sketching the shape of the bone. The waitress still didn't understand and went off to call the cook, who came out with a yellow squash in one hand. My father described the bone, pointing at the squash. We haven't got that, the cook said. No one wants that nowadays. How come no one wants them, she asked. They're not nutritious, sniffed the cook. Now, if you get a thigh bone and boil it all day, you get lots of nutrition, even if it's a frozen frozen one. Add a drop of vinegar, he said. That brings the goodness out. I know, the cook smiled. But a good bone will never be as nourishing as a thigh bone even if you add vinegar. That really annoyed my father. You don't know anything about eating, he shouted. (laughs) 
well, maybe I just know about making it. The cook was getting cross too. You're the one who knows all about eating. I certainly do, he threw back. Then eat, sir, he turned around and headed back <laughs> to the kitchen. They left the restaurant in a rage. There's something wrong with the whole world nowadays, my mother said. Did you see the menu? There was nothing worth eating. Just a long list of things with fancy names, all tasting the same. Not half as good as that rice we used to make with soy sauce and a few dried shrimps, he said. Now that was good. Yeah, why don't we have that for lunch? And of course, <laughs> it ends in disaster. Everything ends in disaster. <laughs> you have to feel sorry for them. The generation gap is acute. So the the anic- silly anecdote I was going to tell was um, from my first year in China when I had, had got, entered Zhejiang province from Scotland province with really no idea what I was in for. And the food, the food um, of course, the food was interesting. Conversations about the food were almost equally as interesting. There is a, a Chinese lady whose English name, I think it was Christine or Christina, one or the other. She asked me, um, why don't you foreigners like to bite bones? I think she meant like chew on them or use them, include them in the bowls of food. And um, I, I, just, I didn't really have an answer at first. My first instinct was to think, wow, is there some deep essential cultural difference that would make us more adverse to bones but then common sense kicked in i think the next day in the shower um having shower thoughts i thought no wait what the reason people don't really want to see bones in their food here is we're sort of um, insulated from them and that's not anything to do with being british or scottish or a westerner or european i think it's just to do with um living in a you know in quotes a, a wealthier more developed country where the meat you'll buy in the supermarket has the bones pre-removed I think that's it, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think there's anything in Western or Chinese culture that's pro-bone or anti-bone in the at the deep, deep level. And in, meat in general wasn't something I'd interrogated much in my brain. Like the way meat served on the plate in the British meal, often quite large chunks that you cut up with a knife and fork and a relatively large serving. Because um, like living in China, I didn't, you can eat meat every day on the cheap, but it'll be in, quite small pieces like your one or two pound 10 20 yuan bowl of nyoro mian beef noodle soup might not have very much beef if you pay a bit more it might have some but it will be less than a beef dish you'd have in the uk and there's nothing good or bad about either of those ways of doing things but i just had not even considered it before that um quantities of meats types of meats having bones or no bones in your food could have all these other connotations and connections that you could write a story about. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not only about wealth and poverty, it's about attitudes to health. And, and as you say, there are big cultural differences as well, although, of course, they don't come up in this story. Bones aside, I wanted to ask how you felt about how the story sits in the collection, because like on one level, this isn't this is a funny story and it's a lighthearted story. But you've already mentioned a lot of the stories are very good at getting into what the characters do and how they feel about things. So how much of a good or bad fit do you think this story is with the rest of them, with these things in mind? I suppose it's a little bit more detached than some of the other stories in that the narrator is the son or daughter Mm. of the parent. 
Lawrence, and he's writing about this old couple uh, and their tragicomic, I mean, it is tragic as well as comic, um, attempts to fit into the modern world and still have their old bones to, to boil up. Um, I don't see it as very different. I think because I've read quite a number of Chen Shiwa's other stories. So I mentioned the one which is a novella called Pet, which if you look on his webpage, you can see that I've translated an excerpt. And that is rather similar to this. Uh, although the narrator is a child, it's, it's tender. And I think there's something tender about this story, possibly more tender than some of the other stories in the collection, but not totally dissimilar from some of his other stories that are not in the collection. So there's a, there's a, a lovely humanity about it, but human beings being what they are, you can imagine the son or daughter banging their heads against the wall and saying, for heaven's sake, parents, <laughs> yeah. I will pay you whatever you want to buy bones with meat on or just the meat. But no, they're nostalgic. So my parents are divorced, which means they exist in two sets with my um, respective um, step parents. And it's very interesting comparing each couple's particular hang-ups and the intensity of or how, how much of a rabbit hole they'll go down strange petty things that I wouldn't blink an eye at. So that that's relatable. One one last obscure point I have in my head and want to mention on the microphone. Um, on first reading, I sort of stored this story in my head as a third person story, which is exactly how most of it reads. But it's got a really subtle, almost invisible narrator. Like I said, he he appears at the start, and then I think he's back sort of at the end, reflecting on his parents. But he's he's just he's interesting. I think it's it was interesting rereading, bearing in mind this is a narrator. Possibly I wondered if it was Chen Shiwa speaking himself in a way, speaking affectionately about these yeah. slightly silly yeah. parents of his. Yeah. I thought that added an interesting, again, heartwarming dimension. Um I wanted to ask you one more question about our bones. It's the sense of humor. Because in in my mind, especially in the first reading, I was thinking of this book as like a absurdist, existential, and sometimes comedy fits in with those things quite well because it's the best way to deal with the sort of absurd or difficult world. How did you find the humour in this story and the humour, if any, however dark, in the other stories? Oh, I think, I think the, the humour in this story is lovely. I mean... There's just a wonderful bit in the, the very last page where it says the, the police wound up calling me, not because they'd arrested my parents, but because my parents refused to walk free. It's <laughs> 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 a wonderful bit where the police, the sergeant is, is yelling. Um, it's it, where she, the mother, is saying, arrest us. We stole those bones. And, and the, uh, the sergeant shouts, it's just a few bones no one wanted. They're worth nothing. And she, the parents still don't, don't get satisfaction. So it, it is very funny. Some of the others are not so funny um, and certainly darker than, than that. And what else have we got? Pain, pain has a degree of humour in it. Um, I love my mum about the paraplegic um, who ends up killing his mother um, is, I would say, not funny at all. Yeah, I was going to say the same, uh, not funny at all. Yeah. I, I, kid, kidney Tonic, to me, had a little bit of humour just in how sort of blinkered the uh, narrator was. 
And I seem to remember as Blake as well, he has a, he recounts a scheme where they were selling a kidney tonic that they were somehow tying together with Osama bin Laden as a sales pitch somehow. Yes. That was verging <laughs> into the bizarre world. Osama bin Laden does get in there. Oh, it's all too convoluted to go into now. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it is quite funny. And it does involve Osama bin Laden. And it does involve taking kidneys out of people who are being executed um, and putting them into people who need new kidneys. I think because Chen Siwar is writing about people who seem very real and very plausible, there are always light touches um, I would say I Love My Mum is probably the one with fewest light touches, but it's it's very readable. I mean, it is it is almost comic where the mother tries to find him um, a wife and this girl takes one look at him and disappears. And then because human beings are funny and there are always ways to to tease out little comic touches. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I see the stories all, all of a piece. Uh, I do think that Pain and Our Bones are both my favourites, but in very different ways. And I'd be fascinated to see if, if Harvey Tomlinson manages to get this film made of I Love My Mum. Apparently it's quite far advanced in terms of they have found an actor to play the main role. I would just so love to see it. Yeah, that's... um got to be a real undertaking there um because like you said that's that story is basically just not funny it's um pitch black amongst other one <laughs> other darker shades of gray i should keep us moving because um we've been talking a wee while here but we've still got some more sections to get through so okay. the next section i've titled it why be a literary sinner um so talking a bit more about themes and ideas as much as much as we can or should because maybe we don't want to overanalyze um so first thing i wanted to ask about was something that whilst typing up these questions i called the twisted extremes of experience because we've got pain big clue in the name of that story uh we have swindling and also i guess oh what is the word called voyeurism and sorry privacy invasion in kidney tonic um Mm -hmm. We've got murder in various forms. And I love my mom. We have incest. And I guess in the backstory of our bones, we've got possibly starvation, if not starvation, extreme poverty. Um, in The Man with the Knife, we have, um, it's uh, that one is in a way maybe the most disturbing because it's about the literary scene and like sexual harassment and abuse and corruption that can go on in that world, which I suppose is the world Tenshiwa made been in before he was ostracized from it although i wouldn't want to speculate too much about that yeah i I think you're right yeah yeah going to heaven we have the death of a kid killed by another kid so these are all extremes if even if we take um darkness or social criticism out of the equation this isn't the middle ground this is pretty um all or nothing stuff so i wanted to ask why do you think he goes to these extremes in so many of his stories i i think he People have always said about Chun Shi Won, he said about himself, that he uses social and sexual dysfunction as a metaphor for the way society under the current regime doesn't work, inflicts pain on people, uh, and so on. He doesn't want to make grand political generalizations. I don't think that's the job of a writer anyway, but he can see what effect 
the way that people grow up and live in China has on, on individuals. And the way society is shaped comes from the way that the authorities impose regulations on that society. So in other words, the ultimate authority is political. He's writing about people at the bottom, people who live the consequences. I think he regards it as very important to keep writing about the society he sees around him. Mm. That's why he won't shut up. <laughs> Thinking of it in terms of like a on the ground picture or um, painting, painting might be a better way of looking at it, of Chinese mainland Chinese society. It reminds me a little bit of, again, a shock I had on that, that first year in, in Zhejiang and then also living in Shanghai. There were extremes I saw, like incidents, events, behavior, scenarios, or things I was one or two degrees removed from, may have not seen but heard about, that were just that little bit more intense than most things I'd come across as a guy living in the UK. I felt I was less insulated from some of the sharp edges of reality. And that could, I guess that could very easily come from the the system, the social system, or it could come from all sorts of other things going on in Chinese society. The rapid pace of change, uh, denser population, less, I mean, in the more recent past, a lot more disruption than in uh, in the UK. Lots more recently healed uh, wounds, I guess. Um, Now, there was a point I was trying to reach here. What was it? I think I've lost my train of thought. Thought that's that's disappointing. <laughs> Do you want to pick up the thread? Uh, I was following you. I just wasn't quite sure where you were going with that. I were you trying to say that that he reveals a very dark side of Chinese society that you are not aware of existing in society in the UK, where we live? Um, I remembered what I was going to say, but um, to answer your question, um, I felt like um, maybe this is getting a bit too mystical, but I feel like at a fundamental level, life is sort of tough and nasty. And in a, some societies insulate themselves from that better than others. And to my mind, maybe a developing country and maybe possibly an authoritarian one, ironically, that nasty side to things might be a bit more visible. Whereas when you're in the, the first world, there's more shielding from it. That's speaking in exactly the kind of um, generalizations that a writer shouldn't do. Maybe as a podcaster, I'm allowed to. But what I wanted to say is more concrete. The thing I forgot and I've just remembered. It's when you mentioned that we're looking at normal people and not the authorities, it's worth saying we don't run into any high level authority figures in the story stories there's some cops um who are generally neutral or or good guys i don't remember there being any nasty cops in in the story but like there's no politicians that i can recall popping up no judges i don't remember there even being any like rich tycoons it's really just normal people but you're Mm -hmm. right there is a feeling that um at points that we're in a very particular society with a particular setup and that it's things that drive or nudge people in particular directions are invisible things not concrete things so like we were talking earlier or you were talking you were talking earlier about the things that have sort of hampered Chen Shiwo's life in Xi Jinping's China and they're not it's not being thrown in jail or 
having his books burned before his eyes. It's way more subtle things like salary cuts, cost, friends who maybe don't, who knows, um, people might have shied away from him, not because they despise him, but because they see him as a liability. Um, certainly that's why publishers wouldn't want to take the books. It's not that there's necessarily some publishing CEO who says, no, no anti, not anti anything, no problematic books. It's more that they need to keep the business going and publishing his book could, you know, even if there's a 20% chance that publishing one of his books sinks the whole business, you wouldn't really want to take it. You wouldn't want to roll the dice on a one in five chance of that. So yeah, yeah there's invisible, not invisible, offstage forces in the stories. It's maybe similar to how there's offstage forces shaping his life. That's that's what I was trying to say. Can you say that last sentence again? I was following fine until the last sentence. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> so this was on your point about the the, the stories being about ordinary people not about but ordinary people whose lives are shaped by the authoritarian society they're in and basically my point was the authority figures themselves aren't in the stories but they're sort of present in another way and then i was making a bit of a tenuous point there about chen shi was um relationship with censorship being the same it's not that he's been locked up in prison or that all his books have been thrown into the ocean Um, even if the effects are kind of similar Mm. I think I think I'd say that he himself has suffered far more uh, overt uh, consequences of his actions on the part of the authorities whereas I think in in his stories it's true that there aren't many authority figures it's just people living their ordinary lives and getting into trouble for a number of different reasons, like flaws in their own character. I mean, one of the interesting things about this collection of short stories is that if you read them, you might be hard put to say that this these stories took place in China. Hmm. I think they have a universality, which is why I slightly disagree with you. I think maybe if you thought that you can see this happening in China, but not in the country you're living in uh, maybe you led a very sheltered life in the UK <laughs> I did that's the thing I totally did I think I think there are very many dark things going on in our own country and I think one of the good things about his skill as a writer is that he manages to make you believe that this is not just China this is humanity mm. yeah no that's very close to how I read the book first time around reading things as sort of a statement on some existential condition we're all in. And I was trying to be a trying to avoid that reading, reading these two stories, trying to see what's China specific. And definitely out of the two we've picked, Bones felt like that couldn't really have happened in 21st century Britain. Pain, I think, could have, basically. There's nothing exclusively Chinese about the short story Pain, I think. Maybe the point mm-hmm. about opiates is well taken. Otherwise, like someone befriending a someone in uh, the NHS as a way to get slipped some pills. I, I am far from an expert, but that doesn't seem inconceivable at all. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I'm not planning to try. <laughs> mm. I do know um, my, my dad's a doctor and I've never, I've never milked that for any opiates, I can safely say. <laughs> um, 
so next question. So staying on a theme of, um, uh, is it staying on a theme? Maybe it's not staying on a theme, but um, so uh, resurrecting a word I was using very early on in the podcast, um, like episode two or three, because I'd stumbled across it in a academic paper, a uh, Leomang, a uh, hooligan. So like in mm. episode two of this podcast, I looked at Wang Shuo and his book, Please Don't Call Me Human. And then right after that, it was another author published in translation by Harvey and his company, the, the guy who published the book we're looking at, Book of Sins, Murong uh, Shuetsun, who is not from the sort of Liu Mang 80s, 90s period or early 90s period Wang Shuo was from, but to me felt like he was in a similar wheelhouse in that he's uh, sort of a striking, striking a bit of a pose, I felt, as like a literary bad boy writing about edgy stuff verging into like unlikable characters, violence. Um, I think in Murong's case, he's pretty unflinching about showing us the world through the eyes of a very misogynist character. There, so there was that element as well. And t- to me, it was interesting because it sort of did and didn't align with what I thought the stereotype of, or not the stereotype, the typical Chinese author acclaimed in the West might be. I thought every Chinese or I had a suspicion that in translation, English translation from Chinese, there might be a bias towards dissident writers. But then when you have someone who's not writing, you know, stories that would, that are really obviously political or dissident, say like uh, Beijing Coma, all about Tiananmen, if it's someone who's just writing about people misbehaving or going to very dark places or stories that include dark or explicit themes, is that even if it's banned in China, would, would could you call it dissident and would Western publishers glom onto it right away? Um, and would reading a book like that be a way to get, still be sort of imposing a Western seeing what you want to see lens on Chinese lit? Or would it be a way of getting to something, getting onto a sort of a reader's uh, a road less traveled for Western readers. So all those things were floating in my head and mm. those were sort of still floating in my head when I re- read Book of Sins for the first time, as well as looking for something sort of miserable to sit alongside some really miserable Western writers I'd read. So if I've got a question for you, it would just be like, is, is it, um, would you not recommend uh, reading uh, Chen Shiwa as sort of a guy in that bad boy style of writing or is there something there i yes i feel he's absolutely not one of the literary bad boys i mean there are so many books coming out of china uh, because publishers western publishers do seem to like them of bad boys being bad in the city and i've never really i haven't i, I haven't translated one and i've read some in translation I find them boring. I mean, if I'm reading a story where the bad boy is being bad and it is almost always boys and it is boys or men writing them, and I actually do not care what happens to a character, I kind of think, why am I reading this book? These are bad boys being bad in the city. So <laughs> he's very different. Chen Shiwa is very different because he is, whether you like his stories or not, he is very committed. He's committed to his characters. Right. So he doesn't have that degree of uh, wanting to shock or only wanting to shock in a rather different way, not just for the being bad. 
I'm someone who enjoys shock for a purpose and for its own sake. So I'm a bit different from you in that regard, but it's undeniable. The difference is huge. Um, when it's for its own sake, I think if you're being honest with yourself as a reader or movie viewer, uh, you know it. Whereas if it's got a, if it's got not even necessarily a point, but if it's got thought behind it, it's a very different beast. And I'd, I'd agree. Yeah. Um, I never felt like it was any of these stories were edginess for the sake of edginess. Mm. Maybe in part, like, I don't know, maybe bits of kidney tonic, perhaps. But even if there didn't feel like there was a some social point being made, there was some psychological truth, like the guy being a bit of a weird voyeur in kidney tonic, obsessing over someone in another apartment. I felt that was getting twisted, maybe for the sake of being twisted, but it didn't feel like we we're just um, trying to shock me for shock value itself. It felt like it was sort of true to a strange places certain people's minds can lead them whereas like um so i've read both of the murong books that harvey's published in translation and first reading the first one uh, leave me alone it's just non-stop this guy is drinking overeating over womanizing and is it's a quick read i read it really quickly it's nothing like anything i expected i really enjoyed it but then second time reading the other one dancing through red dust that mm. one did have more of a point it was a sort of an inside picture of a hell hell world that is the Chinese legal system. But mm. again, it was like, bang, 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 this guy just being a real piece of work. And eventually his, <laughs> the consequences catch up with him. But the bang, 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 bang felt monotonous after a certain point. I was just going along with it. And that strikes me as being really different from um, Book of Sins. I think um, you've mentioned a few of the bad boy writers, Wang Shaw, Han Han, Han, Han yeah. and also at, uh, some of the Xu uh, Zhechen stories. Uh, you can't imagine any of those writing works in the voice of a woman, using a woman narrator. And one of the things about Shen Shiwo is that he does use women narrators. Right. That's interesting. Yep, I'm trying to imagine that, and I'm I'm struggling. <laughs> the one I've not read that I wonder if it's an interesting one to lump in this category is uh, Shanghai Baby, um, but I've not yeah. read it, so I couldn't comment. I I read it ages ago, and it's another one where I could read it quickly. I enjoyed it. I got to the end and thought, hmm, did I really care about that character? And I wasn't sure that I did, but it was a long time ago that I read it. One more thing on this point uh, before I keep us going. That was an, another another writer who didn't fit maybe a shallow expectation I had was actually Wang Shuo himself. Um, the two books of his you can get in English weren't just for me, bang, bang, bang. Um, look at this, look at that. Look how bad I'm being. Uh, the uh, Please Don't Call Me Human, the first one, felt like a more mature writer than that because it was is a lot of it was about the Olympics and a sort of national, it was like a, a quite sophisticated satire of certain nationalistic tendencies. You could probably find in any country, but these were like Chinese Olympic national, Olympic nationalism with Chinese characteristics um, for sure. I really didn't see mm. that coming. And then the other one playing for thrills was definitely, it was about sort of an ex bad boy. He's um, he's left behind a very debauched past to live a more mildly debauched one but he's mostly <laughs> sort of 
drifting in almost like a dreamlike state at points through, I think it's Be- yeah, Beijing. And it gets sort of dreamlike. I felt like at times I was reading a more traditional sort of um, Dream of the Red Chamber style story, but maybe I was misreading it. So not, I don't really have a question for you there. I just wanted to say Wang Shuo was another guy, despite being the guy yeah. who I learned about the word Liu Meng from, sort of defied yeah. my expectations. Maybe that's because uh, English publishers chose the more interesting of his stories to translate. I, I don't know. Yeah, well, he certainly has a very good reputation. Mm. Uh, I haven't read very much of his. Yeah, um, the one I've read the one uh, Han Han fiction book in English. Uh, I want to talk with the world, and I, that one wasn't. It wasn't exactly uh, a great feminist work, but um, again, sort of surprised me. It was. It felt like a later, more sensitive sort of work. I guess again, maybe translators skipped out on the more uh, naughty stuff. Mm. Um, I've got a last question for you. Um, so we, I talked about extremes of experience, but I guess we could talk about reader's experience. You mentioned that pain was the hardest one for you to get through and that a lot of the stories are a bit sort of difficult. Um, so the question I've got is, do you enjoy reading the stories in Book of Sins or is enjoy just totally the wrong verb? Oh, no, I, I enjoyed them very much. I mean, I can think of stories that I find much harder to get through. I, I find them very enjoyable often, most of the time, just because they're deeply human. And I think that's quite important to me as a reader. Mm. I don't really have a follow-up there. I guess, can I say my own experience? Um, mm. I, oh, fascination is, is maybe the adjective. That's, that's not an adjective, that's a noun. Uh, that was the thing that was going through my head. Um, I felt that the epigraph at the start, that, um, well, the quote, you've corrupted my imagination and inflamed my blood. I'm beginning to enjoy all this. I can't say I was affected that strongly, but the, the thing he included after that um, about it's a dark world, you, you, you know you want to look, you can't look away. I know you want to read about these dark things, but look, it's... Um, it's something I have to share. That was that. I don't know if he just if he sort of tricked me by setting me up in that way, but I felt sort of like that as I went through all the stories. I was glued to them, mm. no matter how nasty they got. I just wanted to keep going. Um, so I can't really analyze that. Just that was my impression as I went through. Mm. I guess we can go on to the last couple of sections of questions. Uh, first section is the miscellaneous section. And I always start this one with a, a, a Chinese word of the day. So can you think of a word or do you have a word that would be a good one to parcel along with this book? I could say pain. Perfect. <laughs> Is that tong? Yeah. Right. Tong. Yes. But of course, the, the stories are not entirely painful, but... There is quite a lot of forensic digging around in pain in all in all of them to one degree or another. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess pain pain takes many forms. So maybe yeah, I could turn yeah. this into a linguistic question because I know pain in English that can mean physical pain from your nerve endings like I was describing about my tooth or it could be mm. emotional pain, psychological pain, it could be things like economic pain, um putting the pain on your bank balance. But tong, I don't know so much about. I only know tong as in like, ow, that hurts, tong. But could we use that in other contexts in Chinese? 
I think tom in Chinese is is used for emotional pain, as in bei tom, and also tou tom. I've got a headache. Oh, yeah. Tom. Um, so yeah, I mean all the examples in in this is my favorite dictionary because it's a Chinese Chinese dictionary, and it's called zdick.net, or in American it would be zdick.net. But actually, it's it's rather interesting because Tom also can be used with other words to other characters to mean to take pity on, to hate, mm. and this one always fascinates me. Tom I to adore, to love dearly. So to love mm. so much it hurts. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and then of course painful, sad, sorrow. But of course, also Tong Kwai, very happy, delighted. It's an extraordinary word. Huh. It's an extraordinary character with a great range of, of meanings, not just pain, but the pain of loving someone too much and um, so delighted that it's almost painful. Uh, very happy, delighted, Tong Kwai, Tong Kwai. So anyway, yes, I think, I think that uh, Tong, I'd like to. I'd like to have that as a pain, pain in all its manifestations, including pain and delight. Yeah, that that links back nicely to that. Yeah, what's the word? That paradox earlier about sometimes the most pessimistic people are the are the most warm-hearted and kind, and sometimes yeah. pain can invert on itself in those ways you just described, and the way the Chinese language is able to describe. That's that's great. Okay, next one. So we did this last time um, with Shenyang. We we chose a piece of music to go with this with the book or with the story. Um, do you have any music that you for you would pair with the book for our listeners? Well, I thought of it actually just now, um, and it's not a very <laughs> it's not a very happy choice, but it's a bit of music that I love. It's from Verdi's opera Il Trova- Trovatore. Um, the troubadour. And the gypsy woman thinks she's taking revenge on her enemy by grabbing the child, the baby, and hurling him into the fire. Oh. And it turns out to be her own baby that she didn't know it was her baby. And um, she ho- she thinks she's she's burnt the the little son of the count, who's her mortal enemy, but instead. It turns out um, that she's accidentally hurled her own baby into the fire. And, and it's a marvellous bit of music. Perfect. I'm looking at all these things, looking at all these things on Google where people have reacted to discussions about this particular aria in Il Trovatore. What? She threw the wrong baby into the fire? Really? <laughs> <laughs> because 
when you watch and listen to opera, anything seems possible. And maybe that's one of the effects of reading Shunshi War sto- stories. You get to understand that anything is possible. You get to accept more than you would normally accept. I think there's some truth to that. This is another silly anecdote, um, but the only opera I've ever seen was actually in Shanghai. Uh, Western opera, I mean. Um, obviously, the only Chinese operas I've seen were in, were in China. Um, but no, I saw uh, Don Juan in Shanghai in uh, the West, West Bund sort of area. Um, and mm. yeah, operatic, sorry, even operatic bad boy, I guess. Never mind literary bad boy. Um, but yeah, no, no analysis there. Just an anecdote. I I'd thought of two songs, and I didn't know which one to pick. But they're they're both from the same album anyway, and it's the same artist I mentioned last time. Uh, Tom Waits again. I don't listen to him that much these days, but uh, th- this song popped into my head when I was thinking, what could I possibly pair with Book of Sins? And it's called uh, God's Away on Business. And it's uh, he's singing in a sort of a guttural voice, talking about again, just sort of um, the crapness of the world and the whole existential thing. God's not here; he's not coming back. The verse I like the most goes like this: "There's a leak. There's a leak in the boiler room. The poor, the lame, the blind." Who are the ones that we kept in charge? Killers, thieves, and lawyers. And that, um, not that there's any lawyers in the Book of Sins, but um, that seems like a good match to me, especially with that first reading I was doing, trying to justify my own uh, miserable state of mind at the time. But I'm a bit more cheerful these days. Oh, good. I was going to say, I wouldn't want anyone to think that reading Trinity War stories is going to plunge them into misery Mm. I think he manages to maintain a certain emotional distance so you can read it it's not going to make you I hope it's not going to make you no yeah I I keep mentioning that not because the book is objectively uber depressing but that's what I went in looking for first time and I think it's an interesting thing I've thought about if you're feeling down and you find yourself consuming, seeking out things, books or movies that um, vibe with that feeling, are you helping give yourself some catharsis or are you just reinforcing a pattern? It's it's uh, not something I think I have an answer yeah. to, but it's something, an idea that popped up in bit to my head, maybe a little too late, but um, worth, worth, worth thinking about if, like me, like I was, any listeners, are in a bit of a cycle like that read something a bit different <laughs> see how it feels <laughs> um it's very cathartic it's mm. uh, i'm sure it's very cathartic <laughs> yeah i think everything in moderation um read this and then go yes. read um glow i don't know um a celebrity autobiography um now i've got a question here that is not going to be on the main feed i've started doing questions for all the Patreon listeners of the show, uh, all 10 of them. But hopefully we can lure some more in with these bonus questions. 
the answer here might be kind of obvious or it might be a surprise. I want to ask you which moment in the book of sins shocked you the most or and or which moment defied your expectations the most? Oh, I think the most shocking was the incest episode in I Love My Mum. What defied my expectations? Maybe the um, the kid in heaven who manages to murder another kid kind of without wanting to. Uh, very sort of Lord of the Flies. Mm. Um, Can I ask, yeah. what, what about that was contrary to what you expected? Was it just that you didn't see it coming or...? I didn't see it coming. Right. I haven't read. I haven't read a lot of stories about kids murdering other kids, either accidentally or not. Mm. It, um, yeah, it's it's quite weird that story. It, I find that one quite quite hard to to. Um, yeah, to sort of make something of. I remember reading it, thinking, well, "Where's this going exactly?" Because I could tell maybe one point of the story is that the kid is in the wrong sort of environment for a kid. He's missing oversight. He's, he's being exposed to possibly creepy adults half the time. And when he's not around the wrong adults half the time, the other half of the time he's playing unsupervised, getting into dire situations. Um, it reminded me actually, a few people my own age and a bit older I spoke to in China said like, they'd known someone who drowned in a river or almost drowned because they went for a swim and it went wrong. And so like in our, the last time we talked when we were um, reading Shenyang's uh, memoir, again, I wasn't too surprised that um, a kid drowned in that story. And I guess similarly in this work of fiction, I wasn't too shocked that a kid playing in I don't know if it was the Chinese countryside or the suburbs, I guess the countryside had a fatal accident because like I was kind of saying, poorly expressing earlier, there's maybe not the layers of padding from consequences that I grew up with as a kid. Um, I wasn't helicopter parented, but I certainly wasn't playing on my own near cliffs. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree that I've read a lot of stories and a lot of them from from real life about children playing on their own and not knowing how to swim. Yeah, I mean, I, I, live, I lived in um, Jiang, the Jiangnan part of China, Zhejiang, Shanghai, lots of canals, and yet There's like a lot the, of the lot of water, yeah. Um, I was going to say something stupid like water-based society. That's that's nonsense. But yeah, like a, a part of the world very historically tied up with waterways. And yet, um, I guess, even in my own generation, not a lot of school or parent-mandated swimming lessons. Just something mm. I would never have thought of, but um, took for granted growing up. But like you were saying, that might not be a Western citizen thing. That might be middle-class suburban boy thing whose parents could afford to get me to the swimming lessons yeah yeah it's uh, it's a tough life for sure <laughs> yeah um i guess i'll close off that bonus question and get to the the last questions the further reading questions um if listeners want more like this book uh in in doesn't have to be translated chinese lit 
could be something in Chinese for readers who read Chinese, you know, totally freehand, uh, where, where would you direct said listeners? I, I think I direct listeners to the selection of short stories called Read Paper Republic, actually on the Paper Republic website. Uh, and also, if you look at Chen Shiwo's author page um, on the website, you'll find various links to other stories that have been translated and are available free and online, mm. either mm. in part or in full. Great yeah. answer. Um, I've got one. I think I also read this on Paper Republic. I believe it's maybe up somewhere else as well. It's from an author who might be about the same age as Chen Chihuahua and is not, I think, a million miles away in that he's maybe bad boy adjacent, but not a bad boy himself. Uh, Ai, there's a really great Ai yes. short story. Yeah, I'm glad we're mentioning him. Um, his his um, uh, The book of his you can get in English translation, A Perfect Crime, is um, to me could be in the same universe as some of these stories in Book of Sins. Uh, got a similar yeah. vibe. Um, but he's, there's a really great short story in English translation called The Curse. And the reason oh. I thought of that is when you were mentioning pet, uh, there's chickens in The Curse. And they're kind of, they're not in the whole story, but I think it's a dispute over chickens that kicks oh. off the action. Yeah. Um, I think I, I I certainly agree. I hadn't actually thought about that, but I I've just translated a novel of his, a longer novel than um, A Perfect Crime, um, which has an awful lot of gory violence in it. But uh, especially in his short stories, he he has a great deal of humanity, and mm. he sees the worst and the best, mostly the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like in. Um... I think in a perfect crime, we maybe only meet one really nice person and she gets killed and shoved in a washing machine in the first <laughs> 20 pages. <laughs> oh dear, sorry, shouldn't laugh. <laughs> no. Well, sometimes what else can you do? <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Ai, I guess. Um, next yeah. question, what are you reading just now? I am reading something completely different. I'm reading... The, uh, the second volume that's available on Kindle of Mary Carr. <gasps> Brilliant. Uh, She's a favourite of mine. I never came across her before, and I can't remember why I came across her this time. And it might have been because I mentioned her in uh, oh, the maybe. episode with Shen Yang. I mentioned um, uh, her, her second book, Lit, about being... Oh, no, sorry, I mentioned The Liar's Club. Because it's about that, growing up with did. Uh, and I and parents. I went, I went and bought it. I went and bought the and I liked it so much, and I was so impressed by her writing that I have just bought Lit. Right now, uh, I'm eight eight percent through, so I've only just started it. Hmm. I read the um, Liars Club my last year in university, <laughs> and then. I think about two years later, I was reading Lit in cafes and my sofa in Shanghai. So that's not, that book's nothing to do with China, but in my mind, I associate it with living a Shanghai life. <laughs> well, um, thank you for introducing me to Mary Carr. Yeah, I, I think I've evangelized, evangelized um, a lot about her through my life since reading those books, but I never thought, <laughs> I never would have seen it coming that I'd... Um, get it through to a 
a, a liter- Chinese literature translator via, via the medium of a podcast. Never saw that coming, but <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. She's, she's a great writer, I think. She mm, really is. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that was my last question. Um, is there anything else you want to say before we uh, hit that record button again? I think it's been a very good discussion about Chen Xi Wu, and thank you for allowing me to talk more about one of my favourite authors. That's all right. Um, it was it was great, um, great having you on. I think often when I have a guest on the show, we more or less have the same view of a book. I think this time we did have slightly different views, so that was that was good. Um, I, I yeah. think you were common sense, and I was the guy who was trying really hard not to be common sense. So that was. I'm always, I'm always common sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and on that note, I'll stop recording. <laughs> Okay, we've reached the end of the show. I'm sure you enjoyed listening to Vicky Harmon coming on the show for not the first time, not the second time, but the third time. And I hope that you are brave enough to read The Book of Sins, if you haven't already. But if you've not got the stomach for what we described, then, like, how can I blame you? I don't really want to waste too much time, too much of your time on plugs for this episode. I'll just say that if you want more if you want more, if you want more, 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 if you've exhausted all of, all of this show's episodes, well, worry not, because there's hours and hours and hours of bonus content on the Trichific Patreon. I've been bringing new episodes out, they tend to be about half an hour long, sometimes longer, about every week. Uh, I might have to tone that down to like once every two weeks or something, we'll see, but um, regardless, there's a huge amount of stuff on there, and you can support this show for one USD per month or more, if you are a very kind soul. Other than that, just go to the show's homepage or find us on social media, especially um, Instagram, Twitter, and Discord. All the links are in the show notes for that. That's all I'll say. Of course, the best thing you can do for the show is spread the word. Tell your friends, your family, although maybe not about uh, Book of Sins. (laughs) You might want to go for something more tame. But if you really are trying to get wild, tell your doctor, the one who prescribes you opiates and see if that can establish some kind of bond that will secure more of that lovely, lovely painkiller for you. On that note, uh, before I pass out, I'll say, Sai GM. Yeah.